Well, my hope is that you have God's word open and ready as you look at 1 John with me this morning. We're going to read the first four verses. And so I'm excited to start this series and especially excited coming off of a book like Judges, you know. I think it was pretty, pretty clear as we read through that. You could really use a, a study in, in the Lord's word that was going to be, you know, more perhaps explicitly encouraging, right? Um, there's a lot that happens in the book of Judges that just makes us cringe and make us wonder, what is the Lord doing in the midst of all this? And, you know, we, our goal was to find the king in a kingless kingdom, um, a place where Christ seemed to be inactive and non, not working or, or to have turned his back on completely. But in fact, he was faithful through it all. And that story in the, in the book of Judges, uh, the, the whole story, the many stories that make up the one of the book, um, bring us to this truth that we can really relate to, that you know, we, <laughs> we have nothing apart from Christ. Without the king in our hearts, we will be left to do what is, whatever is right in our own eyes. And so as we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from the book of Judges to the book of 1 John, we're going to start talking about what it means to abide in Christ. And we'll get into that in a second after we read and pray. But you know, my hope is that this would be a somewhat of a natural flow from considering Okay, if, if the book of Judges made me think about what does my life look like now that I, I know Christ or that the king, or my need for Christ perhaps, now in 1 John, well, how can I know that he's continuing to work in me? How do I know that I am still his? Because there are days where I really wonder, and I'm talking for myself here. I think every believer is going to have some moment at the very least of wondering how could the Lord keep me through this sin or through this trial. And if it's not a moment, then it's many moments in a lifetime of, of struggling to follow Christ and having highs and lows. And, and 1 John's going to help us with that. So why don't we go ahead and read those first four verses. I um, hope you have that open now to read along because this is the most important thing we're going to do today. You know, I think a lot of times we come to church and we think, I can't wait to sing the songs. I can't wait to spend time in prayer. I can't wait to hear the sermon or I can't wait to see my friends. Or whatever. Those are all really great things. The most important thing we're going to do, though, is stop and look at what God has said. And what he has said is valuable to us today. It is eternal. It is everlasting. He never goes back on his word. So let's go ahead and read the first four verses of 1 John, and then we'll pray and share some thoughts on that. John writes in chapter 1, verse 1, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Will you bow your heads, close your eyes, and pray with me? Lord, even just listening to these first four verses of 1 John, I pray, Lord, that you would spark joy and peace and comfort 
through what you've spoken through your apostle here. We thank you that we have Christ who is the word of life. We thank you this morning, Lord, that what we see in these verses is light and life. And it is food to our weary souls who are hungry for truth, hungry for hope, who are muddled down by all sorts of other philosophies and thoughts and so many different voices that enter into our ears day by day, Lord. Be the clearest voice this morning. Open our hearts to receive your word. What we need this morning is to hear from you. Fix it in our minds that what you have to say, whether it seems to immediately address what we think our greatest need is, what you have to say is our greatest need. Holy Spirit, come. Fill our time. Fill this place. Fill the homes where my voice is reaching right now so that it will not be in vain, but rather you will be glorified and your people built up. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're starting a new book, so there's a handful of things that we need to know. Who's writing it? It's a little bit unusual. John doesn't start off the way some of the other epistles start off with saying, this is who's writing. Paul does it every time, except for maybe Hebrews, if you think he wrote that. But here in this first letter of John, he does not start by saying, John, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say anything about himself. He starts with that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Sounds an awful lot like the Gospel of John, but this is indeed, um, the best, to the best of our understanding, the Apostle John, one of the twelve, the one whom he describes himself as in the Gospel of John as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Such a great phrase to consider. What is the, th- the title that you would want to give yourself if you're writing the story about Jesus and you're in this story John decides to refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. What was the most basic, most important, fundamental truth about John's life? Christ loves him. And so it is for all of his children. But this is John the Apostle. This is a letter that he wrote long after he first was called by Jesus to follow him. Possibly, John might have been 50 years older than when he started following Christ. John could have been in his 80s or 90s when this letter was written. And he's writing to a generation of believers who are not that first generation who you would have seen at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, or perhaps even before that, maybe sat at the the Sermon on the Mount or the Feeding of the 5,000. This is perhaps even three or four generations beyond. And he's writing to them the same truth. Because there's a huge issue going on in the church at this time. And it's a, it's a big, weird, and ugly word, which is Gnosticism. It starts with a G. G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M. Gnosticism. And there were two kind of streams of thought when it came to Gnosticism that John deals with here. The first being that Jesus, though he was in fact God, did not truly come to earth as a human. See, in Gnosticism, 
the core truth that they clung to was that everything that is material, everything that is physical, everything that you can see, smell, hear, and touch is bad. And everything that is spiritual, everything that is invisible, those things that you cannot see, you cannot touch, you cannot hear, you cannot smell, those things are what is good. So God cannot become man. He must have only seemed to be like a man. But Jesus could not be fully man because to do so would be to become evil like the rest of sinful creation. Second stream of thought in Gnosticism said that, yes, okay, God did become human, but he only became human to the point where he was just about to be put on the cross. And when he suffered for our sin, the Holy Spirit left Jesus and therefore left him as simply a man to die on the cross for the sins of the world. We might be able to understand that these things may have serious implications as they are false doctrines. They'll have serious implications for people's understanding of who Christ is and what it is that he's done. You can see in the rest of the New Testament, though this is hotly debated by believers and non-believers, you can see in God's word that Jesus is the eternal God. As John said in his first gospel, he was the word who was with God and the word who was God, equal with God, yet distinct. We'll talk about that a little bit later. John's concern here is that the people that he's writing to, most likely in the city of Ephesus, would not fall prey to these false doctrines we learned before in the book of judges on a very practical level idolatry which basically is the expression of false doctrines and 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 false belief leads to gross immorality so even on a very practical level if the church were to follow these streams of thinking that are not biblical what else will that open the door to if we didn't have a solid foundation of what is true we're going to be able to be tossed and thrown by every wave of doctrine, as Paul says. So Gnosticism is a huge issue. And we'll see how John very clearly fights against that and defends the truth that, uh, that Christ has come and is indeed become the God-man, fully God and fully man at the same time. But if you noticed in the slide earlier, our main theme, the word that we're going to kind of hover around as we consider the letter of 1 John is this word abide. It's kind of an old word. We don't use the word abide too often anymore. So what does it mean to abide? Or what does it mean to be at home perhaps? Well, you know I've got to share something from the Lord of the Rings. So here it is. In The Two Towers, which is the second book or the second movie, if you do the movie instead of the book like me. In the second movie, The Two Towers, Sam and Frodo are rappelling down a cliff in the very beginning when something slowly falls out of Sam's pack. He cries out to Frodo for, to catch it. And when they reach the bottom, Frodo opens the small box to reveal the tiniest serving of salt, table salt. Sam's words, it's very special that it's the best salt in all the Shire. You're on a journey to destroy an evil ring and save the entire world from a terrible villain. What good does carrying salt around do? Frodo's reply explains its significance. It is special. It's a little bit of home. Abide where we make our home. 
John uses this word 18 times in his letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He also uses the word nine times in the gospel that he wrote, the story of Christ's life and his mission to save his people. Abide means where we make our home, but it can also carry an idea of waiting. Frodo and Sam's journey took them far from home, something Frodo dreamt of doing when he was younger, but by the time his journey was all over, he could only think about the Shire, about his home. Though current events have had us home even more than I would like, I love being home. My home is where I am most myself, for better or worse. Home is where I live my life with those I love the most. Home is where I share fellowship with others whom I'm on the same journey with to follow Christ. Home is where I find great joy. John's first letter gives us tests to see if we truly abide or if we truly have made our home in Christ. If Christ is our home, if he is our life, if he is our light, if he is our everything. If we have fellowship with him, if we have fellowship with each other. The tests are those three things, which are the test of true faith, true love, and true obedience. Hopefully, this outline will help you follow the flow of John's thoughts this week as a prelude to the message of 1 John. First, we'll see in verses 1 through 2, a proclamation of life, which I'm calling a prelude to the test of faith, of true faith. Secondly, in verse 3, we'll see a provision of fellowship or a prelude to the test of true obedience. And then lastly, we'll see a promise of joy in verse four or a prelude to the test of true love. So that's kind of the roadmap for what we're gonna look at here in these next moments. So let's start with verses one and two, a proclamation of life or the prelude to the test of true faith. So these first two verses sound a lot like the beginning of John one. In fact, if you don't recognize the connection, my encouragement to you would be later today, open up the gospel of John, which is just a few books earlier. Just take a look at those first few words and see that, the connections that he's making here. Because we're going to see a couple of things in verse 3 and 4 of that book as well in a moment. Just as Jesus Christ, the very word of God, the son of God, added humanity to his divine nature or his godness, so John teaches us straight away, Jesus is the gospel. Both the man and the message are the word of life that he's proclaiming. He's the message in verse 2 that is testified to and proclaimed to John's hearers and to us this morning. John's life has been thoroughly built around the truth of who Christ is and why and how he came to us because those things matter as well. You can feel his emphasis coming off of the page. We heard him. We saw him. We touched him. He was real. He is real. He's made manifest to us, and this is what we have to testify to and proclaim to you. The word of life, a real human and fully God at the same time. Jesus, the word of life who was, as his first phrase says, from the beginning Do you feel the weight of glory that John brings at the very beginning of his letter? Jesus was not created near or around the beginning. When the beginning happened, he was there. And he was not only there, but he was also active. Look at John 1, verse 3. There, the same writer says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made 
that was made. And John 1, 4 coincides again with this idea of the word of life. John uses in the same letter, and he says in verse 4 of chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And we can see that here again in 1 John 1, the life was manifest. He's the word of life from the beginning, sharing life, not only that he created, but life that came from him. If you remember in Genesis, there's this wonderful phrase where it says that God breathed into Adam the breath of life. Now, we are not supposed to be breathing in each other's faces right now, okay? We are clearly not supposed to be doing that. But when God created, when everything was perfect, it was as if he gave life to Adam from God. I think that's the the baseline or the ground level of what it means to be made in the image of God. Our life comes from him. That is not to say that we are all little gods. That's a different heresy that we're not going to deal with in this study. Rather, God has made you, my friend, in his image. Jesus was active in the creation of Adam and Eve and the stars and the solar systems and everything. And that word of life became flesh. He became human. He, to this day, is human even still. Though completely divine, equal to the Father and the Spirit, he took human form, or as Paul says in Philippians 2, the form of a servant. He humbled himself, brought himself low, came down to our level. John blows the Gnostic teaching out of the water that says God cannot become human because the physical is evil and God is good. He did, John says. I heard him, I saw him, I touched him. And not only before the cross, but after. In becoming human, he was able to pay the price none of us could to redeem those he created by his work at the cross. Through the proclamation of those who have seen him and today know him. Jesus' work is done. We do not add to what he's done at the cross. He has died as a substitute. He has stepped in your place at the cross so that if you believe what he has done will will credit to your account, that he will exchange his righteousness or his right standing with God to you for your sinfulness. The Bible says we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And that the wages of sin is death. And that death death is not just a temporary thing, but we are eternal creatures who sin against an eternal God and will earn for ourselves an eternal demise over and over for all of eternity. If we cannot, rather if we do not trust in Christ. Jesus has accomplished this. John is proclaiming it. We are called to proclaim it as well. This first test, the test of true faith. What is it you believe about Jesus? Is he just another teacher? C.S. Lewis has this great line where he says that if Jesus isn't who he said he was, we can't say he's a great teacher. We have to say he's either the Lord that he claimed to be, or he's a liar, terrible person, or a lunatic, as he says, as C.S. Lewis says, um, somebody on the same level as a person who might claim to be a poached egg. He's either crazy, evil, he told the truth who do you say that he is how does your life reflect what you believe about christ because we'll see in the test of obedience that it's not simply enough to get these couple verses right 
That's the starting point. It's the foundation. It has to be that way. But it is only truly the foundation of our lives if our lives that we live, the way we think, what we do, and what we say stem out of that truth that John has proclaimed to us. John says that this was the the same one who was with the Father. It's a fascinating thing. So that we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life, verse 2, that life was made manifest. We have seen it and testify to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. John says that this word of life is not separate from God in a way that makes him less than God. But when he says Jesus was with the Father, he's talking about a face-to-face relationship, the closest kind of friendship that you can perceive. Close enough to be of equal godhood, yet simultaneously in that word with, he shows that Christ is distinct as well. That is, he's distinct, but not distant. He has fellowship with God like no other could imagine. Wouldn't be possible for anyone to be as close to God as Jesus was, being God himself, being God the Son. And the amazing thing that John's going to get to here, and I'm going to jump right on ahead to this, because he says here that Jesus was with the Father, and he's been made manifest to us. Later on, we see that, that John is calling us so that we might be in fellowship with each other and in fellowship with God. And what that means is that Christ opens up his relationship to the Father and invites us to share in it. We do not show up to the table with God the Father and God the Son and have the Father look at us and go, oh, you're here. Well, I guess that's okay. We are welcomed. We are accepted in the beloved. We are accepted in Christ because of what he's done. Just as Jesus, who was the Son, God the Son, fully divine, came down to meet us he has so in salvation. If you have faith in Christ, he has brought you up to where he is. It's an incredible truth. Life-changing. His fellowship with God like no other. Yet, in saving us and making us new, he gives us the opportunity to enjoy the great love the great joy, the great happiness and satisfaction of being with God. Can you imagine being freed entirely from sin, free to be with Christ without even the temptation to sin? Because that is the kind of relationship we're being brought into. There's never a doubt in the mind of the Father that the Son would ever turn his back on him, would ever go his own way, would ever rebel. And The Holy Spirit is working in us right now through the process that we call sanctification, being made more like Jesus. He's working step by step in that process with us today. And yet when we are with him, that process will be complete. Somebody asked me just in recent weeks, how could it possibly be that we wouldn't even be tempted to sin? What difference is there when I enter heaven and I've lived a life, my whole life is just plagued with temptation everywhere I go. This is me speaking too. Just thinking about this concept is just, it'll blow your mind a little bit. But what difference is there? We can't conceive of what it's like to not at least be tempted by sin. The difference is the presence of God. The difference is this relationship, this fellowship that Christ has purchased for us. The amazing thing is that though you can't see it yet, God can. And his love for you is that same love that he has for the future you. 
the you that he sees only now outside of time and space and in eternity, he's looking at you and seeing the completed work of the Spirit already. That is how accepted you are. You're not working your way up. You're not, you're not earning good graces with the Father. Christ has done that for you. His work is complete. We're experiencing the growth of that. God knows the certainty of the future of it. So be encouraged. Sin will be done away with. And the only thing we can grasp in our minds to try to consider, like, what, about, what have I even thought about sinning? The only thing we have to look to, I think, is to say, Christ is going to be with us. We're going to be brought into that perfect relationship. Right now, we've been made a little bit lower than the angels, so there's, there's a difference there in our minds. But the truth is, is that the author of Hebrews says that these matters of salvation are, thing, of salvation are things that angels long to look into. Because Jesus did not become an angel and save angels. He became a human and saved humans and brought us into that relationship. You could get stuck on that for days, man. So John says that this is what he testifies to. This is what he proclaims to us. Christ's quality of life. It becomes the purpose of John's life. And he means for it to be our purpose as well. He says he proclaims to you this eternal life. The joy of entering into the great love of God is to be found in eternal life. First, let's think about it quantitatively in regards to numbers here. Quantitatively, it is unending. There will never be an end point to this where God says, hey, look, I've put up with you for a few millennia, but I'm done with you now. Jesus' blood can only cover a few centuries of dealing with you. No, it is eternal life. There is no ending to it. The most simple definition that we can start to grasp hold of is that there is a beginning, there's a point where we will turn to Christ and, and be made his if we believe, but there will not be an ending point to that. Quantitatively, it is eternal. If we trust in the one, that, in Christ who has done what we could never do, and we will never be separated from that. So we will enjoy perfect fellowship with the Father, just as the Son does. Now let's think qualitatively for a second. What is the quality of this eternal life? Well, let's use John's own words in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 10, that Christ said that he came that they may have, that his people, that is, may have life and have it abundantly. That is the eternal life. That is the life he's talking about. One that will go, not go on as a monotonous repeat over and over. Like, don't think of it as, you know, that, that day you realized you were finally sick of your most favorite childhood CD. Eternal life is not just an extension of time forever and ever. But on top of that, it's an overflowing abundance of all the good that will come from being with Christ forever and ever. If you find yourself uninterested in heaven, take a moment, just even just a second, to consider that the more time you spend with the Lord, even here, the more you grow in your faith, you grow in your obedience, you grow in your love, you'll naturally grow in a desire for more of Christ in your life. Yet in eternity, there will be an immeasurable abundance of satisfaction and complete joy in him as you enjoy his presence uninterrupted. There's never going to be a time when we're with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth where he says, hey, listen, I've got to go do a couple things. I'll see you later. Unbroken fellowship, friends. What an incredible joy that is. 
That's, that's amazing. And this is John's testimony and his proclamation. Life. Christ, the word of life. The gospel, the message, the word of life about Christ. Christ is the purpose of life. He's the fullness of life. It's to belong to all believers. He doesn't offer a caveat to anyone who isn't an apostle like him. He doesn't say, yeah, this is really great for me because I'm one of the 12. So I got in at the, you know, the first round here. And so I get to enjoy the most. No, not at all. And it's not about being a preacher or being a missionary or being some especially holy person. It is about who you know. It is about this new relationship that Christ has offered. And it's meant for us. And this is what you're called to testify to and proclaim, believer. If you were his, you exist here on earth. He hasn't just brought you home to where you're meant to abide. He has left you here for a moment with his spirit. It's wrong to say he left you here. He is with us now. But he has kept us here so that we can proclaim and testify to the truth. That Christ is who he says he was, and he has accomplished what he said he would. You have way better things to think about and talk about than only masks and viruses and politics. Oh, how we let things take away from what we have in the precious gospel. If nothing else today, church, lay down your worry over the world for a few minutes and just consider what it, mean for, what it might mean for you right now to abide in Christ. To let everything else settle. Just consider, you abide in Christ. Can you right now make your home in him? Can you recognize his presence? Can you tune out even my voice for just a couple seconds? Abide with him. Thinking about this earlier this week, I immediately, again, going back to the Gospel of John, chapter 4, thought about the Samaritan woman at the well. She had only a few brief moments with him. And yet, immediately after being with him, she became a proclaimer of who he was. She ran from that spot saying, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? She didn't even know that Jesus had come to die on the cross in our place. She's missing like so much of the gospel. All she got was this fact that this person told her all of these terrible things that she did. And she was amazed because she knew what that meant. She knew it meant that God had come to be with his people. And her message, I mean, this isn't the message that we go out to our, our friends and families with. We don't go say, hey, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Wouldn't you like somebody to tell you about all your sin? And yet, for having spent time with Christ, she could not keep it in, my friends. We have to be proclaimers and testifiers of what has truly happened in our hearts. And I'm not saying that fear isn't a factor in this or, or feelings of inadequacy and all those dangers because, man, the enemy would love nothing more and the world would love nothing more for us to just keep this good news to ourselves. And so every effort in the spiritual warfare that goes on is less about causing sickness and doing physical harm. It's more about keeping the mouths of Christians shut so that people won't hear about Jesus. Your greatest battle today, and I'm not trying to diminish the other challenges that you face. I, there are many things that you're going through that I could never fathom. But your greatest battle today 
It's not any of those things. Your battle is going to be whether Christ will be victorious in your life, whether you will live as a proclaimer and a testifier to what he's done. We were like the Samaritan woman if we were like Jesus, like John here in regards to knowing Christ and proclaiming him. Everywhere we go, on our minds saying, I know him, he's real, he's done it. He's taking care of all my deepest need. I didn't even know that I needed it before I met him. And he's brought me into his house to abide with him. Proclaiming this message for us should be special, should be a little bit of home. There in two short verses is the prelude to the test of true faith that we'll see throughout this letter. It's not as though we'll see the test of true faith and the test of true obedience and then the test of true love and then we'll be done. We're going to do the test of obedience and then the test of faith and then back to the test of obedience and then the test of love. It's going to go back and forth. That's not the actual order yet, but you get the idea. John is not writing a formula so much as a symphony and repeating the sounds of the truth and the, the testings of Christian examine your heart, but examine your heart with hope, knowing that Christ has succeeded and he wants to succeed in your life today. Is this what you believe? Is this what you cling to? Look at verse three. We've gone from a proclamation of life to a provision of fellowship. The prelude to the test of true obedience is to be found in this idea of fellowship. Naturally, true faith will precede true obedience and true love. So those first two verses have absorbed much of our time and spilled over into the last two sections already. But first consider this in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This is his purpose purpose is that you know the truth and you're grounded in what is actually true, that you're not listening to false doctrines because when you get Jesus wrong, you lose everything. But when you can get him right, when you can look at his word and see this is the truth, he has become human. He has died in my place. And you find life and you find fellowship. This is his purpose again. Understanding fellowship will help us examine the proof of abiding with Christ in the area of obedience. So I hope Don Carson's definition of fellowship is still somewhat in your minds from our look at Philippians quite a while back now. But Carson defines fellowship in this way, self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. John says he proclaims this still, even to a third or fourth generation of believers, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father. John's desire is to see self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision, and that vision being following Christ, proclaiming him and testifying to him. We can't do that on our own. You know, you're not actually even designed to do it on your own. You're designed to be a part of the body of Christ. And that is not to say that if you have an opportunity to share Christ, you have to wait for somebody else to show up who's a part of the body of Christ. No, but often we think, and when we turn off church today, what a dumb thing to say, right? But it's true, right? We're going to be like, okay, we'll close the laptop and move on. We might think, even perhaps on our best Sundays, the, the farthest we might go sometimes is to think, okay, now I have to figure out how I'm going to share the gospel with people that I know, and I'm all alone. That's not God's design. His design is for you to have fellowship with each other because of your fellowship with him. And so that's where we'll start work backwards here from what John says. If in entering fellowship, however... We're supposed to be self-sacrificial and share in what is God's goal. 
that is the proclamation of the gospel, then the thing we need is submission. I'll only be able to truly submit when I see that joining his team yields far more joy than playing for my own team. But I'll only start to realize what that great joy is to be on God's team if I submit to join his team. This is why faith is so essential at this point, the test of true faith, what you truly believe about Christ. If I believe the good news of Christ for myself, though I may struggle with the concept of giving up my own life and my own goals for his, I can at the very least see that I cannot participate in salvation from sin unless I become a member of his team and join in his mission. I intentionally wrote all of that and wanted to communicate that to you, to bring it up, even though it's confusing, because it, I think, reflects what every Christian experiences at least once in their walk, if not on a regular basis. So what do I do? How do I submit to joining the fellowship of the gospel with God and with his people, empowered by the Holy Spirit? Look at Jesus. Could you look at one who took an incredible punishment for you at the cross and think that he who is the word of life could disappoint you? If you've walked with Christ for some time, is there anything you would, you've, that you have given up for him already that you would undo if you had the chance? Submission is hard when we have our own ways. But if we can see that the one who laid down his life to give his life to us is the only way and the only truth and the only source of all life and goodness. Could there ever be a better alternative? This is the test of obedience. Will we join with him and submit our goals and desires to find greater purpose and deeper joy in him? And there's the matter of fellowship with each other. We talk about fellowship with the Father and the issue of submission. I want to consider the fellowship with each other and the idea of cultivation. So should we think that the fellowship you have with Christ and with other believers is automatically the exact same as what the Apostle John has experienced and is expressing here? Think about when you met your best friend or maybe your future spouse. You may have had that moment when you realized, even at the beginning, who that person was going to become in your life. Of course, even in the joy of friendship, the depth of that joy is cultivated over time. It's forged in the fires of tragedies in life when they were there for you. At times when you didn't know what to do next and they shared wisdom with you. Over time, the strength of friendship is better described by the shared experiences between the two than the great talents or wisdom of either one. So, most often when you introduce a friend to somebody, you say, this is so-and-so, and we've been buddies since elementary school. Or we've known each other since kindergarten. Or we grew up together. We went to church together. When you say those phrases, they carry the weight of shared experience, of cultivated time that even supersedes. You, know, you don't start usually. Maybe, maybe it would be nice if we did. This is my friend. He's brilliant. This is my friend. She is so creative. This is my, you know, we could go and talk about the, the skills and talents and traits. But the truth is, is that our fellowship grows with each other as we cultivate time together. And fellowship like friendship takes cultivation. The Apostle John, maybe 80 or 90 years old again, talks about, well, not 80 or 90 years old again, but I said that earlier. <laughs> He's very old at this point. 
He talks about fellowship with the other apostles. He's talking about the ones that spent day after day with Christ for three years. They all felt the shame of abandoning him when he was arrested and the joy of seeing him appear again to them after he rose from death. They were the ones that carried the message together. Peter and John were imprisoned together for the gospel. Fellowship cultivates and deepens over time and shared experience. So I want to know, do you have that kind of fellowship with someone? Probably none of us can imagine John's full experience. But in receiving the gospel, we've been brought into fellowship with each other because of our fellowship with God. A deeper connection than you can have with any family member, with any friend who you share interests with. You are connected by the blood of Christ with every other believer in the world. Because he has called us to abide with him, we by default must abide with each other. Easier said than done sometimes, right? May help us to know that if we have a fellowship issue with each other, it often involves the status of our fellowship with God. So a familiar verse is helpful here. John 13, verses 34 and 35. John writes there, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Hold on, we're talking about fellowship here, right? Not love. That's true. Fellowship with each other is a matter of obedience. And this is a commandment for the kind of fellowship Christ wants for us. Love, a self-sacrificial conformity to a shared goal, to love and obey Christ by loving and serving each other. In fact, if we are not doing this, John has some serious things to say to us later on in this letter. 1 John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. It's going to be impossible to proclaim the gospel of Jesus who loved us so if we don't love each other. In fact, it becomes the answer to the last test, the last test of true love that we'll see in this book. And that's found in verse 4, the prelude to the test of true love and a promise of joy. Complete joy found in knowing Christ. Verse 4, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. In knowing Christ, who is the eternal life. John has a great purpose in writing what he has so far. Your Bible may have a note regarding the word our in verse 4. There's evidence that it could be translated our or your, so our joy may be complete or your joy may be complete. It's probably best understood, therefore, as our, referring to both John and the church that he's writing to. So as far as the complete joy of the readers, John's hope is that we know this Christ who is the eternal life, that the, the, these things that he mentions refers back to all we have read thus far. If you hold this faith, if you have fellowship with God and each other, then complete joy is yours in them. There's obviously a, a message in here that we need to grab onto that we ought not look for complete joy somewhere else than in our fellowship with God and in our fellowship with each other. Sure, there are great things in this world. I, I, I like to do fun things. I like to take my family out to lunch. We like to go putt-putt golfing. We like to do all those things are really fun, but you're not going to find complete joy in those things because they end. Jesus is the word of life. This is the eternal life that John is proclaiming to us. And do you know the other thing in the world that you see that is eternal are the people around you. The other believers are the eternal ones who, with whom you will have fellowship 
forever with the Father. This is what John wants for them. Complete joy, meaning permanently filled. Of course, we could hardly say that every moment of the Christian life is best described as complete joy, right? Obviously, we're still living in a sin-stained world. Evil things are going on around us, and we're even participating in them in some ways because we've only just begun to live that abundant life of conquering sin one day at a time. David Allen, a commentary writer that I read this past week, said, Joy is the presence of Jesus in our lives. A spirit of exaltation, regardless of circumstances. This is like my new favorite definition of joy. A spirit of exaltation. To lift something high. This is what joy is in the heart of those who abide in Christ. This is the source of joy for those who abide in Christ. How can we lift Christ high if we do not first abide in the truth of who he is and what he has done for for us? That's why the test of true faith is so important. You're not going to get to joy if you don't understand who it is who saved you, that he is alive today, that he is with you, that he loves you, that he's died on a cross for you. And that if he needed to, though he never would, if he needed to, he would do it again. Joy in the presence of Christ. Then consider those around you. How can we lift Christ high if we do not first abide in the truth of who who he is and what he's done for us and with whom we are meant to exalt one another? We are meant to exalt with one another Jesus Christ. That was a backward sentence. We're meant to exalt Jesus Christ with each other, to talk to other believers about how wonderful he is, and to proclaim and testify to those who do not know Christ the glories of his love and what he's done for us at the cross. Don't neglect to think about the gospel regularly. Preach it to yourself when you wake up in the morning, when someone at work makes you angry, when you feel you failed miserably, when you don't know what you're going to do or how you're going to make it through the next big thing. Don't neglect to walk in loving fellowship with other believers who can proclaim this truth to you. I know I need that. Do it for me, please. I'd like to do it for you as well. Do it for each other. When you feel alone, when you need help or advice, when you need reminded of the gospel because you can't even preach it to yourself, perhaps, talk about Jesus with each other. Live on mission together for his glory. When we embrace what Christ has given us, when we abide in him, we access that complete joy. And this is what the Lord promised us in Christ. And it is the test of true love in our hearts. Certainly every Christian will go through seasons of joylessness. But one who abides in Christ will not remain joyless. The reason for this is love. Christ's love has been made clear to us. Joy becomes the song of our hearts and the response of our own love to the Lord. It overflows into the believer's love to know Christ more, to obey him better, to joyfully move forward with confidence that what Christ calls us to, he's also going to equip us for. We can be sure that the work of the Spirit to make us new is still present to empower us for more and more obedience because apart from him, we can do nothing. Take joy in knowing that just as salvation is a work of Christ in us, So the task ahead of proclaiming the gospel to the lost is empowered by him as well. Well, I know you're still thinking about the Lord of the Rings, so let's conclude that illustration. By the time Sam and Frodo made it to Mount Doom to destroy the ring, spoiler alert, after their long, arduous journey, they sat on the side of an erupting volcano 
And Frodo smiles. He's thinking about the Shire, their home. And the first words from both Sam and Frodo after their victory revolved around their home, where they abide. It was where they wanted to be. Though they had journeyed a world away, their hearts were still in the Shire. That's where they would always abide. Yet it was for the sake of the Shire that they did what they did. They shared that purpose. They rejoiced with their mission when their mission was successful. They rejoiced because they knew they could go home now. If Christ feels distant to you today, remember, he has drawn near. He has given you his spirit to abide in you so that you can abide in him. He calls us daily to abide in him, to proclaim the word of life, to live in fellowship, and to receive that great promise of complete joy in Christ alone. Four reflection questions as we move on through our day now. Very basic one to open. Is Christ your home? Non-believer, if you're watching this, if you don't know Christ, my hope is that you would turn from your sin. You would trust in what Christ has done for you. He's done it for you freely so that you can just have what you could never get on your own. Eternal life, forgiveness of all sin, right relationship with God. But believer, is Christ your home? You staying at a hotel somewhere? <laughs> you putting your hope for joy and mission and fellowship in something else for a little while? Maybe you need to come back home today. Maybe you need to think about where you make your home and establish it in Christ this morning. Second, is your life marked by proclaiming the word of life? If we're abiding in Christ, the things that we think about, the things that we love, those are the things that overflow from our mouths. Thirdly, what can you do to embrace fellowship with Christ and his church today? You know, we can say, well, I gotta stay home because of the coronavirus, or I can't do this, I can't do that. My hope is if you're watching this right now, you've got some means of technology to communicate to somebody else, to share the gospel with them, to say a word of prayer with them, to ask them how they're doing, to say, hey, we're in this together. We're on mission to make Christ known. Lastly, joy is found in the heart that exalts Christ, Right? So will you exalt in him and walk in the joy of his presence? You don't have to make it up, friends. You just need to walk in it. You know, Paul wrote a, a verse that is on my heart and mind so often. In Galatians, he says, walk by the spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. When it comes to it later on, we're going to look at the test of obedience. We're going to consider sin. We're going to have to look at some ugly parts of our hearts if we're going to walk in obedience to what God's word says in 1 John. Leading up to that, let us remember Christ's work is complete. It is finished. He's called us to abide with him. He wants to abide in us. His purpose, his plan, his desire is to make that happen. He does not delight in the punishment of the wicked. He wants to redeem us. Today, believer, if you need to repent and trust Christ in light of some, some way that you've wandered from him momentarily, know that he welcomes you with open arms. Be that prodigal son comes up with that great speech on his way back home. I will rise, I will go to my father, I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against you, and in heaven's sight, make me like one of your servants. But know that when you return to the father, he doesn't even let you finish your, your whole beautiful script that you came up with. The prodigal son comes to the father and says, Father, I have sinned against you, and in the sight of heaven, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. May, before he can even say it, the father robes him 
puts sandals on his feet, gives him a ring for his finger, everything to signify that he is home. Let's pray, and we'll sing one last song. Lord, this morning, reveal to our hearts what we need from you. Help us to abide well in you. Give us grace, Lord. We do not know what to do apart from you. Our only hope is that you would work and move. Teach us, guide us, strengthen us, encourage us, give us that great joy in Jesus' name. Amen.